Portions of this program have been transcribed. Other portions have been erased completely. Hello, Toddzilla Files, and welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. The Toddzilla Xpod, EscapingTheCave.com. Fuck Twitter. Facebook page still not up. Are you disappointed? <laughs> I can't bring myself to do it. I looked at it the other day, had it up. I was like, I, I actually activated it for a few minutes. I'm like, I don't want to do it. I haven't completely ruled it out yet. Are you really, are you hanging on edge here? Gee, Todd, are you going to reactivate your Facebook page? My life is so empty without it. Oh, please, Doug. Yeah, you're really doing that. Somehow I sense no. <laughs> Hope you're having a good weekend. Uh, I was going to do a, a political uh, dump. Talked about this in the last episode. Got a whole bunch of stuff over there. Bernie Sanders ran away with the uh, Nevada Primary Caucus. Sorry, it's a caucus out there in Nevada. It's not Nevada. It's Nevada. I, don't, I, I haven't even looked at the uh, latest uh, returns. I know he got a bunch of votes. He did really, really, really well out there. Uh, Joe Biden looks like finished second last time I looked. Um, yeah. Anyway, well, there, there's your political dump for today because there's a bigger story out there. It made the news, and a lot of people have been talking about it this weekend, but I don't think enough. And I think this could turn out and could prove to shape the rest of the uh, political campaign this summer and really affect things later on as we move toward the convention and ultimately the election. There was a story in the Washington Post that Bernie Sanders was briefed a month ago that the Russians are actively working to help his campaign. Disinformation, the same recycled crap that we heard about in 2016 is happening right now. This time, they're trying to help Bernie Sanders. Oh my God, my head's going to explode. Why would they be helping Bernie? Is it because he's a commie? No. This is from the Washington Post article. In a closed hearing for the House Intelligence Committee, lawmakers were also told that Sanders had been informed about Russian interference. The prospect of two rival campaigns, both receiving help from Moscow, appears to reflect, this is fucking rich, appears to reflect what intelligence officials have previously described as Russia's broader interest in sowing division in the United States and uncertainty about the validity of American elections. Let me read part of that again. Russia's broader interest in sowing division, sowing division in the United States and uncertainty about the validity of American elections. Of course, Donald Trump's been real good about helping him out on that front, huh? And Howard Dean, the Democrat, has also helped down that line too, hasn't he? I mentioned that in the last... I'm a little pissed off today. Anyway, Howard Dean came out a couple of weeks ago. One of these Sunday programs. No, it was a Monday. I don't remember exactly what it was. Whatever, Howard. Go scream for me. Screams! Come on, scream! Yeah, Donald Trump wins in uh, November. Where you, you can bet your booty we're going to challenge it because the Republicans always cheat. So now, a Donald Trump win. A Donald Trump victory in November is under suspicious circumstances. And of course, if Donald Trump gets defeated, 
How you feeling? You feeling good today? I hope not. If you're in one of those moods where you're happy and you have a little lift in your step, you shouldn't listen to this podcast today. I just read this article on psychology today. I'm going to go off on a little uh, tangent here. Evacuation order acknowledged. And then they'll just start posting all this negativity. And people react bad to it. They don't want to get a downer. Maybe I had to. I don't give a shit anymore. I do not care. And if you need happy pills, if you need happy talk from me, this is the wrong show for you. I keep telling you, there's this really neat podcast, guys. We warning, 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 warning. The system has become un- un- unstable. This meditation can reduce stressful situations whenever you want to feel calm. When the when somebody's being bitchy or whatever. To begin, inhale through your nose to the count of four, then exhale through your mouth. Feel its warmth as it enters your body. Feel it dissolve stress and tension as if you were sitting in a warm bath. Mm, That's queer. Feel it bathe your throat, ridding you of any tension in your head. Say to yourself, I am calm. I am at peace. Take a deep breath. Feel the warmth and the peace of the light resting in you whenever you need to feel calm. Excuse him. <laughs> Did you get any on you? <laughs> Sorry. If you see something, say something. I see something. The more events play out, the more the mobs and the herds start frothing from the mouth and start start eyeballing each other like you're about to rip their throats out. Based on this agitation propaganda model, this for-profit agitation propaganda model put forth by our media, our influencers, everybody trying to get you to listen to them, to give you the product you want so they can sell advertising, get clicks, increase their fucking status. I am not going to do that. I know what to look for. I've educated myself at least enough to understand that, and we are swimming in it. And it's getting worse. It's worse than getting worse. Nobody gives a shit. No one cares. Oh, I care? No, you don't. I dare say you don't. I can count on that hand how many people I actually think do legitimately care about this enough to examine the situation with objective eyes and observe their own behavior, observe the behavior of the people in their in-group and understand what's happening. Beyond that, we've got about 100 million people who are concerned enough to identify it in the other guy. Well, it just so happens, according to this, according to this Washington Post article, if you believe it, and I do, Well, there's something there for everybody. There's always going to be something for one side to see in the other side because they're playing both sides. And you know what? It's not even their fault. What do you mean by that? There wasn't a delivery system in place 
with people eagerly waiting on the other end of their globally connected propaganda receiver to share it and spread it like the coronavirus. <laughs> it would just be sitting there in cyberspace, rotting. Or it wouldn't, they wouldn't even have bothered to produce it. It's not them. It's us. The problem is us because we do not care. The means have smothered and buried the ends in a cornfield somewhere behind Salem's lot. The means are the spreading of the informational coronavirus. Informational anarchy, truth of choice, truth of perception. Anything to support your adopted fiction. Demonize the other guy and elevate you. Oh, you are elevated to the position of righteousness with a moral certitude. Remember that? The moral certitude of the righteousness of your just cause. So anything you can find to support that and saddle the other guy with the label of Satan, you're going to do it. You don't care. And they have figured out that we are awash in this, that we are psychologically lobotomized enough, incapable of enough critical thought, unwilling, not incapable, unwilling to engage enough critical thought to see through the game, to see how the marionette strings are being pulled. You think they're dumb? Look what they're doing to themselves. Hell, let's help. I'm going to be playing some clips from uh, Your Undivided Attention. I played some of this episode uh, back in October. Actually, that's a really good episode to listen to. The Disinformation 16 episode, you go back to October 30th of 2019. Uh, It's the last show that I did before my extended sabbatical for mental health. (laughs) I highly recommend uh, that you go listen to that. And go listen to their entire episode. I do not have the time, the inclination, or the patience to play every single clip I have saved from that show. And they deserve the hit anyway. It's one of the very few people who are actually talking about this stuff. Your Undivided Attention, the episode is called From Russia with Likes. Actually, there are two episodes. Listen to them both at least twice. Listen to the Trust Falls episode. Listen to the entire catalog. Yes, I am sending you to another podcast. It complements mine beautifully. These guys are more academic than I am. However, and this is going to horrify you. Oh, you're such an arrogant pompous as fine. I own it. You know what? I actually think that I understand the uh, psychological techniques behind propaganda better than they do. They understand the technical stuff far better than me. These guys worked in the industry. They worked in tech. They understand how the technology is being manufactured intentionally to addict you, to take over your mind and suck you in. Renee DeResta, the disinformation chick, she understands a lot more about some of, the, some of that specific aspect of this, but they don't ever really dive into the psychology behind this, and it's not new. It's been around a hundred fucking years. But somehow, I don't hear anyone talking about that. I don't hear anyone talking about how it's done and how to vaccinate the public from it. I'm the only one that I'm aware of. Maybe not. There's a couple of people who are writing some books. 
I looked for another podcast on this. I did. I looked for other people. I looked for peers, <laughs> contemporaries, whatever you want to call it, colleagues. I couldn't find them. I did find people claiming to talk about propaganda, but it was always about somebody else's propaganda. It was like a bunch of liberals talking about Donald Trump and his propaganda. Or it's some Trump bots out there that are talking about the, the socialist propaganda campaign. They're both right, but they don't see it in themselves. They never see it. They never actually take it from a complete perspective. They don't understand. I think maybe the single most important factor with propaganda is that you and me and everybody, I don't care about your education. I don't give two shits if you spent 20 years at Oxford ingesting every piece of education you could get. You are susceptible to this. And if you don't think you're susceptible, you're not only susceptible, you're a sitting fucking duck. There's this thing, and people say, oh man, like all those dumb gullible people over there that got influenced by Russian propaganda. Wow. How vulnerable they are. Like good thing. I, the smart one over here, I would never be influenced by that. I have like at least a hundred friends in my newsfeed on Facebook who have actually installed this thing. And I have a lot of smart friends. What they're talking about right there. You remember that photo app that would age you or turn you into a man or a woman. You're some other gender <laughs> that was put together in Russia. So many people downloaded that thing. So if you think that your education or your intelligence level is going to allow you to immunize yourself and be immune from all of this, you're nuts. You are more susceptible than the biggest rube if you believe that. I promise you. This has been shown again and again and again and again and again. In fact, I think I have, I'll use myself as, as an example. I'm afraid that I'm going to have to start walking some stuff back from last year. I was getting extremely venomous toward um, a certain segment of the left. I still don't agree with it. I still don't like them, and I still will vote against them. But I could feel that. I could feel that agitation stuff, and it didn't take much to get me there. I was exposed to some stuff from the intellectual dark web who only focus on one aspect of the political spectrum. One generalized aspect with different little tentacles coming off of it. I basked in that too long, and I think it took root. I think I have to scrub some sludge out of my own mind. Listen, I'm not the dumbest person in the world. I'm not the smartest guy on the planet either, but I'm not dumb. If you think I'm dumb, for one thing, why are you listening to this? But I can tell you this, I'm also pretty educated in this stuff. As compared to the average human being, I'm in the top one-tenth of one percent in understanding this stuff, I promise you. And it still got me. I don't know how much. It, I have to go figure that out. I have to sit down and actually think about that. What part of my identity did they target? And what, how, how far did I take it and run with it? Here's another clip from last year. Attacks on your identity. This is how they do it. Check this out. They began to position it strongly in opposition when the Confederate monuments were coming down. And then even then, that framing was about your identity. This is an attack on your identity. This is, mm. a, this is an affront to you as a Southerner. They had a nuanced view of how the right operated, too, in the sense that pages targeting older people leaned more into narratives of um, security, Ronald Reagan, lots of images of flags. <laughs> Just um, imagine the history of Russia pushing Ronald Reagan memes. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, <laughs> I know there's irony there. <laughs> um, 
the younger leaning Russian stuff was much more of like the kind of snarky, um, you know, there was a meme that was, um, are you team conservative or team yeah, conservative? This is younger conservative, you're saying? Yeah, so, yeah, so it, was, it, would, it would lean more into the, um, you know, they had pages targeting the Tea Party. They also had pages targeting more like the the kind of like pro-Trump, right? So they, they did have that segmentation. So that's what I was talking about in one of the last episodes with advertising. Advertising wants to love mark you. If it can tether something to your identity, they have you. Because you feel like you are a part of that. Like that is a part of your physical existence. Love marks. But if they can do that via attacks on something you hold dear, either your race, your gender, this is identity politics. This is the core of identity politics. Attacks on your identity. And it's not ideologically specific. I know you think it is. You probably see it in them, and you probably don't see it in your side, but it's there. This is partitioning. This is tribalism. Creating the division within the culture. This is agitation propaganda. And it's more effective if you wage two campaigns at the same time. The goal is not to get somebody elected, contrary to popular belief. Why would they be helping Bernie Sanders? There is a train of thought that they think that Donald Trump will just annihilate Bernie, that he's got a better chance of beating Bernie Sanders than any other candidate in that field. There is something to that. That could be part of it. But even if it is, think about this. If your goal, your overarching goal is agitation, destabilizing the population, who and what is more agitating than Donald Trump? What better way for the Russians to destabilize this country via agitation propaganda than having that in the White House? You could be right about that. They could be wanting Donald Trump to win re-election. They may have been in favor of him in 2016 for a number of reasons. One of those reasons could be that the agitation uh, campaign had been working so well, and they knew that if this guy won, he would be perfect. And we have proven him nothing but right. Because with him, the left has followed suit. It's radicalized itself in response, equal and opposite radicalization. Newton's third law of political extremism. For every radicalization, there's an equal and opposite radicalization. That's exa- it's, been pre- it's predictable. I called this years ago. And I ejected myself from the woke flake crowd, from the Democrats, from, from being a liberal <laughs> in general. An identifying liberal as soon as that was confirmed in early 2017. That was the point when I started to finally sober up. So if destabilization is the goal, agitation is the tool. And if agitation is the tool, you have got a perfect storm this election season. You've got Donald Trump and his fanatics over here, his crazed fanatics, who will believe anything he says, he and his crowd will perfectly agitate the left. The further left you go, the more you hate him, the more riled up you are, the more you are basking in agitation's goal, which is hatred and division. And now, after the third primary election, 
in the 2020 electoral season, Bernie Sanders, completely off the scale on the other side, with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ms. Targaryen, they are the perfect photo negative to Donald Trump because they will agitate the right almost as much as Trump agitates the left. Why would you not, from the Russian perspective of agitation and destabilization, why wouldn't you sit somewhere at some computer terminal, churning out memes, churning out disinformation for people to consume, mindlessly consume, and spit out all over cyberspace? Why wouldn't you do that? Again, this goes back to uh, 2016 broader interest of sowing division in the United States and uncertainty about the validity of American elections. This was the original narrative in 2016. Do you remember? I do. I think Obama was still in office at this point. When they finally figured out that there was Russian interference going on, they said that destabilization was the problem. They were were agitating both sides then. But that sort of got drowned out when Meadow, Rachel Meadow and her funky bunch decided to run with their own politically convenient fictions and dominate the story that Russia wanted Trump to win because Trump's a Russian asset or a Russian spy or a Russian plant, a Manchurian candidate, all sorts of conspiracies over there. No, you're unstable, America. Let's see what happens if we can get the most agitating person possible in office to fuck with your head. Now, Bernie responded to uh, some of this for the article. He said in 2016, Russia used Internet propaganda to sow division in our country. And my understanding, this is Bernie speaking, is that they are doing it again in 2020. Some of the ugly stuff on the Internet attributed to our campaign may well not be coming from real supporters. This is Bernie Sanders. This guy could be president. This is the front runner. And he's not this stupid. He says, some of the ugly stuff on the internet attributed to our campaign may well not be coming from real supporters. It doesn't matter who it's coming from. They're exploiting tribalism and an informational consumer ignorance that's already there, waiting, ready, eager to be exploited. It doesn't matter if your supporters are putting this out or not. It doesn't matter at all. And the gist of the article is that they're trying to help him. He's still taking the track that the Russians are trying to help Trump. Even though he was briefed and warned that the Russians are interfering trying to help him. I don't understand this obtuseness. Actually, I do. Denial. Deflectionism. What are we supposed to think here? That his ideologically drunk, batshit supporters, you know, the ones snatching the mic away from him on stage, prancing across the rally stage naked, dancing. You see that? Are we supposed to think that these people, the ones acting like they just escaped from Bellevue, are we supposed to believe that they fact-check all of the stuff they're sharing all over the Internet? Any better than Trump's mob does? Again, the gist of the article, it's not all being crafted to agitate against you, Bernie. They want to help you. They are targeting segments of the Trump population as well. There's a template for all of this. We saw it happen in 2016. They were helping both sides. They were agitating both sides. I won't say they were helping, but they were stirring the shit on both sides of the political spectrum. And it worked. It worked. There is a template for this.
Here's a reminder of how things went in 2016, starting with the Democrats. On the left, the political content took the form of anti-Hillary. Bunch of stuff that was pro-Jill Stein, bunch of, you know, when Bernie Sanders was still in the ring, pro-Bernie Sanders. When Bernie was no longer in the ring, the um, conversations about the ways in which the Democratic Party had, you know, had wounded Bernie voters. So the idea was eroding faith in the institutional Democrats. It turned out to be Hillary a terrible choice. We've all talked about that before. But in the run-up to that... That targeted and focused on, among other things, Bernie Sanders and the vulture Jill Stein. Her candidacy never made any sense. I do not understand how no one is looking into this. I don't. Anyway, they also did the same thing to Republicans. Here you go. They wanted to erode support for institutional Republicans as well. So there was a ton that was anti-McCain, ton that was anti-Lindsey Graham, particularly when Lindsey Graham was kind of at loggerheads with President Trump or then candidate Trump. Uh, They were anti-Ted Cruz, anti-Marco Rubio during the primaries when they wanted to kind of uh, bolster support for for, uh, then-candidate Trump. So that's the run-up to the election. Okay, that's over like the summer months. This is all the stuff that you saw on social media uh, being passed around mindlessly coughed into the ecosystem that was coming from Russia. Now, as the election approached, like the week before, things changed. This is creepy. Check this out. But one thing that was very interesting was in the week leading up to the election, the content targeting the right was all about anger. Mm. It was phenomenally angry. It was, um, we need to get ready to have an armed insurrection if Hillary steals the election. It was, we have to vote to stick it to the elites. You know, it was constant anger. It was just constant anger to drive people to go take an action, go vote, go vote, go vote. Not even go vote because we love President Trump so much. It was go vote because she can't win. And if she wins, it destroys America. And so that was where you would see this. um, We have to be ready to riot. I mean, we all remember that, right? As the election got close and it appeared that, you know, the the common wisdom anyway was that Hillary was going to win that election. You remember the right going batshit. I mean, it was a noticeable change. I remember thinking, what the hell's going on? They're going nuts. But the change was not limited to the right. There's a science behind this. There is a technique behind this. I promise you, I'll get to this in a minute. Meanwhile, on the left and in the black community, it was apathy. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't anger at all, actually. It was just, why would we get out of bed for this? This mm-hmm. isn't for us. Mm-hmm. Did you have an example that they were posting photos of like cute black families or something like that during election week? It was sort into, of... they, they've posted a lot of inspirational stories about... Um, like black youths in particular, mm. and 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 that was that was always framed. Actually, I mean, I loved reading them. I thought it was great. Like as you know, as somebody who was reading these stories as I was going, saying like, "Oh, that's an interesting story. I hadn't heard about that." But it was a, th- it was being framed as like, "This is the narrative the media doesn't want you to see." That was aimed at voter suppression on the left. So do you see what's going on here? You're attacking the institutional candidates on both sides. So you have Donald Trump. So he has a better chance of winning the nomination, securing the nomination, while at the same time, you're supporting Bernie Sanders, at least saying good things, agitating the voters against the institutional candidates or the institutional Democrats themselves. That was the whole idea behind the DNC hack, and it worked out beautifully because they got the emails and they they could actually release these things showing that the Democrats in the Democratic National Committee The Democratic Party didn't want the Democratic Socialist, the interloper, to win the Democratic nomination. And you could exploit that 
for propaganda purposes, that is gold. And I'm going to come back to Jill Stein. Her candidacy made no sense against Donald Trump. Why would Jill Stein, with that supposed platform, ever bother to enter the race against Hillary Clinton against that? It made no sense then, and she was always campaigning against Hillary, just like Tulsi Gabbard is now. Why? And you remember the rhetoric flying around back in 2016. If Donald Trump was such an existential threat, why are you campaigning against Hillary? It still stinks to high hell. I would bet something significant that if a real investigation was ever held, she's going to come back filthy. It makes too much sense. The DNC hack, the emails about Bernie, Tipping the scales against Bernie, there's a propaganda campaign. Then you've got a simultaneous one run by Jill Stein, eroding faith in the institutional candidate again with a fringe candidacy that has no prayer in winning. Then you get closer to the election and you start suppressing the vote with stuff like what I just played. Collectively, it's not one thing. Jill Stein alone didn't cost Hillary that election. Bernie Sanders getting fucked in the primary didn't cost Hillary the election. Suppressing the black vote the week before the election didn't cost her the election either. It was the combination of everything. While at the same time, Donald Trump doing his thing, and then you've got this really intense agitation of the opposite kind, this vitriolic Hatred. Then if Hillary wins, we've got to have an armed insurrection. She cannot win. This is the kind of propaganda that pushes people to the polls. Now, you can say, Well, Todd, I thought you said that he wasn't really trying to help Trump. I think he was trying to help Trump. I think it was a two-pronged strategy. A, agitation. Destabilization. Split the country down the middle. Tribalism. Partitioning, as uh, Jock Lule talked about fracturing the country into different tribes. We're already primed for it anyway. And yes, I think the second part of that was if we can possibly get him in office, I mean, he's going to be a destabilizing force anyway throughout the Republican primary because he's going to be eroding faith in the Republican inst uh, institutional candidates just at the same time that Bernie and all this other stuff is going on so we can erode faith in the uh, Democratic Party and their institutional candidates. But if we can get him in office, if all this works... And as it got closer to the election, it looked like it might. If we can get him in office, what is more agitating than that for four years? And the Democrats played right along. They were playing along on Inauguration Day. I told you the story, right? I lived in Chicago in 2017. I like to fancy myself a photographer. I sell photography, by the way. Upperworldphoto.com, by the way, if you want to buy a picture, support the podcast, do that for me. Anyway, I was doing my photography back then, and I was like, this is kind of historic. He's being sworn in today, and there are all sorts of protests going on downtown Chicago. I'm taking my camera down there. That's the first time I was introduced to Antifa. They were there, wearing their masks. I have photos of them. I didn't know who the hell they were. Who the hell are these people wearing these masks? Are you Zorro? But the first thing I noticed, one of the very first things I took a picture of, is a guy holding this sign up over his head saying, start impeachment now. Before he had even done anything, he'd been in office maybe two hours when I took that picture. 
And that's been the theme of the last three years. And that has aided in this destabilization. It's aided in the agitation. It's aided in the fracturing of this country. I don't care what your opinion is on whether or not Donald Trump should have been impeached or not. The narrative was set before any investigations were even begun, and it never stopped. This gives fuel to that narrative that they hate him and they want him out of office. They hate us, so therefore they want him out of office. And then you've got the propaganda networks just taking it from there. That's so easy to take that narrative and run with it. Reinforce it constantly. While on the other side, Maddow and the Funky Bunch doing the same thing to the Democrats. This is a problem that I have here. Of course, this stuff's already begun for this year. It's going to continue to ramp up as we move toward the election. It's going to get worse. Now we have the counter-narrative. We have Trump being helped by the Russians. Now we've got the the counter-narrative that Bernie's being helped by the Russians. One of the uh, most insidious aspects of propaganda, one of, the, one of the creepiest parts that I got out of it last year was when Alul was talking about how sometimes it's necessary to run counter-propaganda campaigns simultaneously. To rile one side up against the other. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's happening. It's happening right now. And we are playing right into it. We want it. And nothing's going to be done about it. Nothing is going to be done about it this year because no one cares. No one gives a shit at all. Maybe people in the intelligence community, I think this is Renee DeResta person that I've been uh, playing here from the uh, Your Undivided Attention podcast. Go listen to that. I'm going to say it again at the end of the show, but go listen to that. They care. They understand parts of what's going on. But it's almost like you get these little pieces parts from different places that nobody is really putting all of this together putting it together in a way that will help people to understand what is happening to them, to you, to me, the public, the people consuming this crap on their device, to at least plant the seed of how to immunize yourself from it, how to inoculate yourself from propaganda a little bit. You can't completely do it, but you can't do anything if you're not aware of it. I only see little bits and pieces of it, and I never, I have never, even on this podcast, they try to say, well, how can tech save us? I've talked about that before. It's one thing I do not like about this podcast, (laughs) rather than just saying, hey, you know what? Delete your Facebook account. Get off Twitter. Shut the TV off. Rather than saying that, oh, well, maybe technology can save us. Maybe Facebook will evolve and help us counter this stuff. Bullshit. Bullshit. I got an idea where Facebook's going, and it ain't the evolutionary track. When you do see people identifying and detecting this stuff, the only thing that you see are elements of how they see it in other people on the other side. They see the propaganda from Trump. They see the Russian. Maybe they, see, maybe they can detect the Russian stuff that's trying to you know, help Trump or trying to pander to Trump's crowd. The people on the other side, they're going to be able to see the stuff Maybe. It's pandering to the Bernie folks. But they never see it in its totality. Never. Nobody. If you know of someone, I'd love to hear from them. It's always the other guy. Always. Another element of propaganda. The infected never know they are infected. That's a tenet of good propaganda. This propaganda is exquisite. 
And Bernie is getting it getting painted into the same corner now. This is brilliant in a diabolical sort of way, because now Bernie is being saddled with the same thing Trump was saddled with in 2016. Think about that. Why did it take him a month to mention it? He never mentioned it. He was told about this a month ago. I go read the article. It's hilarious because somebody in a press conference interview or whatever it was asked him, well, why didn't you say something a month ago? Why is it only coming out now? Well, because it's just before the primary. Uh, Washington Post did it. My buddies. Okay. Why didn't you mention this a month ago? Why did you hide it? Those questions are going to be asked now. There may be good reasons. There may be altruistic, virtuous reasons why he didn't say anything. It isn't going to matter. It's like he got caught now. Got caught hiding it because he wanted the help. The same way Donald Trump wanted the help in 2016. So now everything... I'm slamming shit. I'm sorry. So everything that we've been through... Since Trump was elected, the Russians are helping Donald Trump. He's a a Russian interference to help Trump. Now we get the Russian interference to help Bernie. Wash, rinse, repeat. I have a quote for you. This is from Walter Lippmann. He is, uh, if you haven't noticed, been listening to the podcast, quickly becoming one of my heroes. I don't have many heroes. He's becoming one of them. I got this from a book called The Public Philosophy that came in the mail this week. It goes like this, uh, when the chaff of silliness, baseness, and deception is so voluminous that it submerges the kernels of truth, freedom of speech may produce such frivolity or such mischief that it cannot be preserved against the demand for a restoration of order or decency. Here's the important part. If there is a dividing line between liberty and license, it is where freedom of speech is no longer respected as a procedure of the truth and becomes the unrestricted right to exploit the ignorance and to incite the passions of the people. Then freedom is such a hullabaloo of sophistry, propaganda, special pleading, lobbying, and salesmanship that it is difficult to remember why freedom of speech is worth the pain in trouble of defending it. I said earlier this week that a hullabaloo of sophistry, propaganda, special pleading, lobbying, and salesmanship should be the new slogan for Facebook. They should have that hanging over the door in Menlo Park. Is that Menlo Park? Wherever the hell they are. That's Google, right? (laughs) Facebook headquarters should have that in the pretty blue script right above the door when everybody goes to work. The hullabaloo That was written in 1955. Now, in an electronically interconnected world where every pocket contains that globally and instantaneously reachable sophistry, propaganda, special pleading, lobbying, and salesmanship receiver, without a sense of responsibility and sophistication on the part of the propagandy, on the part of the informational consumer, it literally becomes an ignorance-fed national security threat. Have you noticed That is not hyperbole. Not in the least. Some people have said as much, not forcefully enough, in my view. And it boils down to this, kids. Facebook and Twitter, probably Instagram, whoever else. Look at them all. 
they're going to have to radically change at some point or they're going to be guillotined. They're going to be shut down. And hopefully that's all that happens because when truth dies, authoritarianism or anarchy follow. You cannot live in a free society if you are not tethered to objective reality at least a little bit. It doesn't happen. It doesn't work that way. That's where demagogues come from. I'm reading the Berlin Diary by uh, William Shire. He's the guy that wrote uh, Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. He was dumbfounded, stupefied by the, the German public's ignorance and the stuff that they would believe. They couldn't listen to the radio. They couldn't listen to the BBC without a threat of a prison sentence. I'm going to tell you a little story that I got from that book that ties into what happens when you have no objective truth, when you have lost all connection to reality, when you live in a totalitarian state or an authoritarian state that controls the information or, in our case, sells you only happy facts because that's what you want. You do not remain free. Someone who knows what they're doing is going to be able to hoodwink you. A demagogue is a coming. A demagogue is a here. Anyway, here's the story. <clears throat> sort of highlights this. So there was this law, a decree put forth by Hitler, that you could not listen as a German citizen to foreign broadcasts. The punishment was draconian. He did not want any external information coming in to challenge his propaganda, Goebbels' propaganda. Now, this is going on during the war. Young men would go off and fight. Something would happen. Their families wouldn't hear from them. They didn't know if they were dead, captured. They didn't know have any information whatsoever. <laughs> like the Nazis were, you know, real big on letting families know their kids were dead. Now, at the same time, this is great, the BBC would broadcast the names of captured prisoners of war. BBC signal got from London right into Germany. That's brilliant. They know that these families have no idea, no information on their kids. So it's kind of a humanitarian thing to do, but it's also bait to get people to listen to these broadcasts that are emanating and that are originating from outside of Nazi Germany. Real information, or at least, if not real information, some counter-propaganda. Well, anyway, that was highly illegal. So there's this woman that her uh, kid had gone off to war, gone off to fight somewhere, gone off to some battle. She didn't know anything about anything. She was concerned. She was torn up as a mother would be. However, her friends... Eight of her friends listened to the BBC, and it turned out that her son had been captured by the British. They heard his name on the BBC broadcast. So her eight friends went and told her, Hey, your son's alive. He's just been captured, but he's not dead. Isn't that great? She turned him in. All eight of them turned him into the state. Had him thrown in prison for listening to a foreign broadcast. Think about that. Think about the chilling effect that would have. Of course it was used as propaganda within the, uh, within the Reich. This noble patriot has done her duty and turned in these uh, traitors who have listened to this foreign broadcast. This is what a good German does. That would horrify you if you lived in that country. It would terrify you. Even if you were listening to the BBC on a regular basis, getting real news and information, you wouldn't spread it, would you? You wouldn't tell your friends about it. What if they turn you in? That's how you live in an informational cocoon. There was another story, sort of a similar one, 
where uh, this family just assumed that their kid had been killed. So they're going to have a funeral, right? They plan it out. They're ready to go. And just before the funeral, one of their friends or family members listening to the BBC found out that this kid had been uh, captured. They know what could happen if they cancel the funeral. Think about it for just a second. You plan a funeral for your kid. You're in Nazi Germany. You know the punishment for listening to a foreign broadcast. How are you going to explain that? How are you going to explain canceling the funeral? They didn't. They got together and decided we're going to have this funeral. We're going to hold this funeral and just go with it. Think about the the psychological fuckery that's going on here. How people can live in these echo chambers. How they can live isolated from everything else. How they can believe this stuff. Now, this was enforced in a totalitarian, authoritarian state threat of prison sentences, right? You can understand that, I think, at least to a degree. You can be judgmental if you want. I would retort that you don't know how the hell you would have reacted to it in the same situation. Well, I'd be thinking for myself, well, maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, whatever. The effect is the same regardless of why you are not getting objective truth. In this case, you were prevented from it under threat of prison. In our situation, we don't get it because we do not want it. It is not financially viable. We are given boutique news and information of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, on demand through our devices and through electronic media. We will ingest anything we want. The Russians understand this. This campaign, I hate to say it, I've been saying a lot of things I don't want to say the last few weeks, is brilliant. A society that can't tell truth from falsehood does not remain free. It doesn't matter why you can't tell truth from falsehood, whether it's chosen or enforced. In our case, it's worse than Nazi Germany, in my view, because we choose this. We choose and demand to have our worldview reinforced. We live in a capitalist society with capitalist for-profit media. They have got to provide that or they go out of business. I've been saying this since I resumed this podcast. It's the people. It is us. We choose to live this way. We choose to be isolated, ignorant, lobotomized. We choose to flourish in these uh, herd-filled echo chambers. The Russians understand this. They know we can be manipulated by targeting the tribe, by targeting the identity. Well, why don't we do something about it? Well, what are the politicians going to do? Well, they can stop it. They can prevent it. But think about that. Think about this for just a second. They really can't. Facebook is a private company, and we get hard-ons about freedom of speech. You're not going to censor me. You can't censor anything. It's free speech. The cure to bad speech is more speech. Right? The holy opinion rules. I have a little more on that coming here in a second. Politicians can't do a goddamn thing. Now, instead of going to war. Probably could sell that at some point, but they can't fix this. They cannot fix the foreign disinformation problem with legislation reform or some thumb-in-the-butt, I don't know, social media education program. They cannot teach people to detect propaganda and disinformation. Well, why? That doesn't make any sense. Actually, it does. This is why the tactic is genius, if you think about it. They are using our own principles and freedom against us because they know that derp nation, us, you and I, 
They know that we do not care about the implicit public responsibility coming with any presumed right of free speech. These foreign influencers, the Russians, and that's exactly what they are, they're no different than the social media influencers we have here. They are doing nothing themselves that our own political parties' campaigns are not doing themselves right here in this country. If the government or anybody else were to educate the public on the techniques of foreign propaganda and how to detect and avoid it, they'd fumigate themselves. And a large part of standard advertising along with it. If they were to teach you, if they were to start a campaign, a massive campaign, to teach how to detect Russian disinformation or disinformation and propaganda in general, they would be teaching you to detect theirs. They would be teaching you how to arm yourself against advertising. Oh yeah, I'm sure they're eager to do that, huh? Imagine that. CNN would probably transition from cable news network to a cat nation network or something. (laughs) Maybe be sold within a month. And I'm telling you, For this reason alone, I think Facebook eventually is going to take the fall for this. Facebook, Twitter, they're either going to have to radically retrofit themselves, or yeah, they're going to be the scapegoat here, because we can't have that. The political apparatus cannot have a public that is even partially immune to propaganda. And there's also the aspect of, would you listen? Would you want to know when you're being bullshitted? Because that's going to, oh, oh boy, that's a problem. I went into this last year when I talked about, uh, I need to get back to the propaganda. You know what I think I'm going to do? I think I'm going to do the uh, validation stuff I've got written up. And I think I'm going to replay, re-upload, without the current event stuff and maybe some of the opinion and commentary that I put forth last year, some of these propaganda episodes. Because what I'm talking about here is if you immunize or withdraw a propaganda campaign, an embedded propaganda campaign that people have grown used to, they start to need it. It's all been outlined. I've done this before. I've got this in these podcasts last year. I know it sounds weird if you're a new listener, but you need it. If you depend on it, you need it. You require it. And if that's taken away, the psychological effects are horrifying. That's why you don't do it. That's why it's so hard. I talked a lot about this with the independent thought stuff the last week or so. Because when you leave that tribe, when that tribe is taken away from you, when you lose your religion, where do you go? What do you do? You lose your compass. Lose your herd, lose your tribe. Enemy sets in, self-doubt, confusion. You don't know where to go. You have no compass anymore. They cannot immunize you from it, but they can't fight it either. Because the only way to fight it is to either get rid of the delivery mechanism, the platform, which is Facebook, or to tell you how to detect it yourself, to educate you, so you don't share it. But if they do that, there's a psychological side effect and a political side effect, a social side effect, because they're going to immunize you against them. Oh, good times, huh? Running a little long today. I was supposed to be keeping these at a half hour. No way in hell. I'm going to leave you with a little bit of a repeat here. I did this, I think, in the last episode. Again, Walter Lippmann. This is from the uh, article he put out in November of 1919. Put this out in the Atlantic. And this nails it. I mean, this guy knows his stuff. He may turn out to be one of my primary sources of information. 
I certainly am getting a lot out of this. Anyway, if you heard the podcast, this will sound familiar. I'll cut it down a little bit this time. But this starts to talk about when the means strangle the ends and what happens when people don't have access to objective information for whatever reason. He says, because we have no current information and no background of facts, we are, of course, the undiscriminating objects of any agitator who chooses to rant against something. Says that now men who have lost their grip on the relative facts of their environment are the inevitable victims of agitation and propaganda. 1919, remember. Right after World War I. He says the quack, the charlatan, the jingo, and the terrorist can flourish only where the audience is deprived of independent access to information. But where all news comes at second hand, where all the testimony is uncertain, men cease to respond to truths and respond simply to opinions. The environment in which they act is not the realities themselves, but the pseudo-environment, the internal narrative, of reports, rumors, and guesses. The whole reference of thought comes to be what somebody asserts, not what actually is. You become untethered to reality at that point, he says. To continue, he says that since they are deprived of any trustworthy means of knowing what is really going on, since everything is on the plane of assertion and propaganda, they believe whatever fits most comfortably with their prepossessions. They just pick what they want to believe is true. He says that if this breakdown of the means of public knowledge should occur at a time of immense change, uh, it's a compounding of the difficulty. From bewilderment to panic is a short step, as everyone knows who's watched a crowd when danger threatens. At the present time, a nation easily acts like a crowd, a mob, under the influence of headlines and panicky print, the contagion of unreason. The contagion of unreason can easily spread through a settled community. For when the comparatively recent and unstable nervous organization, our minds, comparatively recent and unstable nervous organization, which makes us capable of responding to reality as it is, and not as we should wish it, when that's baffled over a continuing period of time, the more primitive but much stronger instincts are let loose. Later on in the article, he says that the cardinal fact always is the loss of contact with objective information. Public as well as private reason depends on it. Public as well as private reason depends on the contact with objective information. Not what somebody says, not what somebody wishes were true, uh, but what is so beyond all our opining constitutes the touchstone of our sanity. And a society which lives at second hand will commit incredible follies and countenance inconceivable brutalities if that contact is intermittent. Demagoguery is a parasite that flourishes where discrimination fails, and only those who are at grips with things themselves are impervious to it. Let me repeat. Demagoguery is a parasite that flourishes where discrimination fails and only those who are at grips with things themselves, reality, are impervious to it. In the last analysis, the demagogue, whether of the right or left, is, consciously or unconsciously, an undetected liar. One final thing I'm going to tie in here. just occurred to me as I was reading that, and I've got it right here. 
It just so happens I'm a prepared little podcaster today. Where is it? A society which lives at second hand will commit incredible follies and countenance inconceivable brutalities if that contact is intermittent and trustworthy. If that contact with objective reality is intermittent agitation propaganda will cut that tethering to reality for you. And the inconceivable brutalities, well, Mr. Alul talked about that in his section of the book on agitation propaganda. This will sound familiar to you, and it will sound familiar to you again because I am going to release uh, this episode once more. But he says that uh, propaganda offers release on a grand scale. This is Jacques Alul from his book Propaganda. He says propaganda will permit what was so far prohibited, such as hatred which is a dangerous, destructive feeling and fought by society. But man always has a certain need to hate. You know that's true. But he hides it in his heart. Thing is, propaganda offers him an object of hatred, for all propaganda is aimed at an enemy. Propaganda thus displaces and liberates feelings of aggression by offering specific objects of hatred to the citizen. This generally suffices to channel the passion, generally. And the hatred it offers is not shameful. It's not the evil hatred that he must hide, but a legitimate hatred. A socially legitimate hatred. The kind that's pushed forth by the validation of the herd, the group. As the individual cells in this collective herd organism descend into the group mind and become stupid. Remember, mobs are dumb. Yeah, the hatred is not shameful. It's not the evil hatred he thinks he has to hide, but a legitimate hatred which he can justly feel. Also, propaganda points out enemies that must be slain, either literally or figuratively, transforming crime into a praiseworthy act. This is the way the propaganda opens the door. It allows him to kill the Jews, the bourgeois, the communists, and so on. And such murder even becomes an achievement at some point. This is all the result of agitation propaganda. These are the hatreds that are unleashed via agitation propaganda after enough time if it's done sufficiently well. In such cases, the person attaches himself passionately to the source of such propaganda, which for him provides liberation. Later on in this, he says there appeals to simple elementary sentiments requiring no refinement, exploiting primal emotions, or as uh, Lippmann called them, the more primitive but much stronger instincts. Exploiting these primal emotions, letting them loose, the propaganda can gain acceptance for the biggest lies, the worst delusions, sentiments that act immediately, provoke violent reactions, awaken such passions that they justify all sacrifices. This is sort of a Trojan horse. Sacrifices. Demand sacrifices. You're happy to give them. Alul claims that uh, such sentiments correspond to the primary needs of all men. The need to eat, the need to be one's own master, and the need to hate something. I'm sorry if you don't agree with that line. That human beings have an innate need to hate something. The outgroup, the auslander, the outsider, the outtribe individual or group. It's all over. It's written all over our faces. Watch your mental processes sometime. You may not want to kill these people. You may not want to fight these people. But feel it. 
It's evident everywhere. I said in another podcast that I think that this technology and the ability to hide behind these screens has unleashed that and it's having real effects outside of the matrix. And this is key, especially for what we've been talking about today. Given the ease of releasing such sentiments, the psychological means employed can be simple. I need to write a book on this stuff. <laughs> it could be the pamphlet, a speech, the poster, memes these days, internet memes, rumor conspiracy. Jonathan Haidt talked about this. His standard, uh, when you want to believe something, you just ask yourself, hey, you know what, can I let myself believe this? Yes, I can. Finally, I'll end this section here. I could go on. This episode was probably, what, an hour, hour and a half when I did it uh, last year. Uh, He says that uh, in order to make agitation propaganda, it is not even necessary to have the mass media of communication at one's disposal. Such propaganda feeds on itself. Listen to this. This kind of propaganda feeds on itself. Each person seized by it becomes, in turn, a propagandist. This is why the Russian stuff works. You want it? You like it, you see it, you take it, you pass it around. You do the job. All they have to do is say here. And the busy little bees of the internet will do the rest of the work for them. That's how it works. That's why it's not them. Without us, without people wanting to spread this stuff and play the part of the propagandists themselves, this stuff would not work. It's us. I'm sorry. That is the only way to look at this. And nobody's saying that. I have heard not one person say that. They can't say it. They can't tell you that to your face. You'll turn them off. You'll go find some happy facts, some happy treats. Never to hear it again. But it doesn't change the fact. Just because you will not look at it doesn't mean it's not there. And that is the core of the problem. It's always been the core of the problem. It's us. Not being willing to take accountability and responsibility for living in a free society, living in a democracy, and taking the responsibility that comes with free speech. Because without truth, without objective reality, you will not remain free. That's almost written in stone. You may for a while, but eventually servitude's coming. It's either servitude or anarchy. I know a lot of you fancy yourself survivalists. I don't think anarchy is going to turn out quite the way you think it is. Look at the warlord states in the Middle East. You want to live there? Yeah, that'd be cool. (laughs) Anyway, I think that's enough for today. Got a little more here, but... (sighs) Honestly, I don't know what else to say right now. I feel like I should have something profound. It's all shaping up, man. All this material is there. Nobody will look at it. Nobody wants to see it. Nobody wants to say, I'm playing a part in this. I should stop. Winter is here. Actually, spring's almost here. Thank God baseball season's going to start, huh? The rest of this year, I'm telling you, (laughs) the way this is shaping up, oh my God. (sighs) 
Escapingthecave.com, that is my website. Please go pay a visit. Upperworldphoto.com. Go look at my pretty pictures, too. Oh, if you want to buy one, it's great. You don't have to. They are gorgeous, though. Fuck Twitter. Not sure about that Facebook thing yet. Oh, yeah. Also, make sure you're subscribed to Escaping the Cave. If you're on the Christopher Media feed, switch it over to Escaping the Cave, please. I don't want to lose you at any point in time. Thanks for clicking in. We'll talk to you next time. So long.